people that make artificial intelligence? And how should it be done differently? And in some cases, should AI be made at all? This week on Download This Show, all technology is the product of humans. But just who are the people behind that technology? Which values and voices are prioritised? And I guess the other question there is, which ones are excluded? We are diving into the ethics of artificial intelligence from voice assistance through to how you're targeted by social media and advertisers. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show and three guests this week, starting with Dr. Jathan Sadowski. Jathan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be on today and, you know, part of the ABC Top 5 at that. Yes, you are indeed. He's also a research fellow in Emerging Technologies Research Lab and the Centre for Excellence for Automated Decision Making and Society at Monash University. And Ellen Broad from ANU. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Ellen Broad is a senior fellow at the 3A Institute and writing out, rounding out our panel rather is Dr. Tao Fan. Welcome. Hello. Happy to be here. Tao Fan is a research fellow also with Monash University. All right, let's start with this. Dr. Taufan, what do people get wrong when they start talking about AI? Because there's obviously been a lot of debate as to how AI folds into different parts of our lives. But when you hear other people talk about it, what do you think they get wrong first? I think maybe the first thing that people get wrong is that they use AI in the singular, Mm. as if there is one big prolific AI that rules us all, you know? (laughs) I mean, we're we're working up to that, obviously. We're not there yet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Skynet is coming, but it's not here yet. (laughs) So, I mean, there is not one single AI. There are lots and lots of different kinds of AIs that work in different ways and at different levels. And I think talking about it in the singular makes it really difficult to comprehend. It makes it really difficult to critique. And it makes for an everyday person sort of really difficult to understand, you know, how is this specifically impacting my life? Because an AI can be something like a voice recognition thing that we see in um, digital assistants, for example, or it could also be the algorithm that regulates what ads we're going to see on our Facebook news feeds. But it also is more mundane things like RoboDebt, for example, was often talked about as being a type of AI, but it wasn't really, it was sort of a really mundane sort of automated decision-making system. I would completely agree with everything Tao just said. I think the description of AI in the singular is a real challenge. It makes us think of something mystical and connected and overseeing us all. I think there's also a tendency to presume as a matter of fact that the systems that we're interacting with are smarter than we are. Mm. So quite often, you know, Tao just used the example of Centrelink's automated debt recovery That was one that we assumed was much more intelligent than it actually was simply by virtue of calling it AI. So it gives these systems a sense of intelligence and superiority that sometimes they don't really deserve. (laughs) And how about you, Jathan, in terms of things that people get wrong about talking around AI? 
Yeah, and I mean, I think building off of everything that Ellen and Tao have just beautifully laid out, it's also that AI, like Soylent Green, is made of people. <laughs> There's always people at every single phase of designing and implementing AI, of interpreting its conclusions, and just making it work. There's a lot of hidden people involved in actually you know, cleaning and labeling data, use the train AI. There's a lot of hidden people involved in making decisions about what AI systems are invested in and which ones are not invested in. But, you know, as Ellen was just laying out, thinking about it as artificial intelligence, as something robotic or automated, really is a, is a great way of dehumanizing something that is through and through uh, a human product and human all the way down. I should tell you, Jathan, that uh, the the nature of your connection, it kind of speeds up and pitches up your voice and up and down. And so at a certain point, you do actually sound a little bit like AI. I assure everybody listening that you are absolutely real, but we're just going to persevere through the connection issues. But I want to pick up on something you said there, Jathan, because I think it's really key to this. AI is people. That gets us into this big, messy, complex area of ethics, right? Who's doing the design? How are they designing it? And how should it be done better? So let's start off with the, the who, right? So Ellen... When we come to talking about AI, demographically, who's doing the designing at the moment? And, and what sort of impact do you think that's having on the, I guess, the philosophy of the way AI is being designed at the moment, Ellen? So artificial intelligence as an official discipline came out of an MIT workshop in the 1950s at Dartmouth College. And so the people that were at that original workshop were overwhelmingly white and male and coming out of computer science as a discipline. And so that origin of artificial intelligence being in a US-based context, in a research context, in a context concerned with the Cold War and defence and military applications, who were overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly white, have really shaped the evolution of many forms of computing, many forms of automated processes since. It's come from a particular place and time and that place is US-centric white and male. Right. And so where can you see the impacts of that in, in sort of decisions that have been made in AI? Are there particular ones that sort of stand out that it's, I guess, just to kind of bring it back to something we might recognise? There are so many different examples of the ways in which the systems that we design end up presuming certain things about their audiences. So some of the classic ones were, for example, when Apple produced its health application that would help you monitor and make predictions about various aspects of your physical health. And they excluded a period tracker because the conclusion made by engineers was that tracking your period was not data that people would be interested in and needed as part of predictions made about various aspects of your body. These kinds of examples are throughout the design of AI. AI judging standards of beauty based on magazine covers that are predominantly white women. We always, as engineers, choose information that we think is relevant in the context we're trying to make predictions in. So if your experience is white, male, college educated, perhaps your first startup was ranking women's hotness, <laughs> that tends to shape what you do after that. I can't possibly imagine who you might be referring to there. Are there examples that stand out where the demographics of who's doing the design can be seen in the product that emerges out the other end of that particular pipeline? 
Yeah, there's a really famous study from researchers Timnit Geber and Joy Bolamwini in the US that looks at the error rates on facial recognition analysis technologies. And they did sort of a survey of a number of leading facial recognition technologies. And they had sort of test groups, sorry, for sort of different kinds of faces. And the people with the highest error rates were women with darker skin. Right. So we have this issue where something that's trying to be rolled out across like so many different platforms, things like phones, things like doors, things like airports are failing on such a large group of people. But I wonder if I could just jump in quickly just to kind of express a little bit of concern about the way sometimes we talk about like this diversity issue. Mm -hmm. It is true that these cultures are not diverse and, you know, it's like, you know, we think about it as a very specific and narrow group of people making products for another very specific and narrow group of people. And as Ellen said, you know, it's sometimes it's often classified as like this rich white guy problem, right? And so there's so many, so much attention paid to the way that this, the one way that we should fix the rich white guy problem is by diversifying that space. That is by adding women and stirring or adding brown people and stirring, right? And I really <laughs> would like to push back against that because I really don't think it's sufficient because, you know, what that does is that it turns women and non-white people into corporate assets where difference is desirable, not because it's like a stepping stone towards any kind of social change, but because it's good PR. Does it not have an effect on the product though, to have more people feeding into that creative process? So rarely are they actually looking for difference. They're looking for physical difference they're looking for aesthetic difference in people. But actually in terms of like ideologies and, and difference, they're not looking for that. And, you know, and there are so many examples of where companies like Google have tried to diversify their teams by, for example, making an ethical AI like research unit and they've hired non-white people and they've hired lots of women and then they've gone on to bully and harass and fire a lot of those women just for doing their jobs. So what are the sorts of things, Tao, that you think would make a difference in that space? I suppose the first question to ask is like, what is it being used for, though? There's one thing to say that it should be more inclusive, but inclusive as to what purpose. So, so much of that facial recognition technology, for example, although is like, yes, we should, one way to fixing that is by having more diverse, having the training data be more diverse. What we saw in practice was companies like Google specifically pay interns to go out into the street and give um, vouchers to homeless people and students to take their data, to take pictures of their faces. And then what does that do? It builds a system that then is used for corrections facilities. It's used, you know, inside of carceral networks. It's used to actually like punish and surveil those very people. So sometimes the question does need to be included into what. Okay. What are your thoughts on this, Ellen? I think there's a couple of different issues to unpack here. I think there's both structural questions about the kinds of technologies that we build and would, for example, if you had a more diverse group of people building technologies, would we even think of facial recognition technology in incarceration settings as being something we should absolutely work on? I highly doubt that we would continue to create the same kinds of technology applications 
with different kinds of teams coming from different backgrounds. There are structural questions of priorities and incentives for the industry that I think need unpacking. However, I would really push back on the idea that it's not just about having more diverse teams or adding more women or people from different backgrounds to engineering products wouldn't make any difference because I've worked on engineering teams building incredibly complex products that are affecting people's lives. For example, building applications that are going to enable people to share their financial data with different providers and make predictions about the kinds of things that you can spend your money on. And these are incredibly complex, sensitive topics. And it is absolutely the case that when you have, for example, a female engineer involved in the design of your product that's going to collect really sensitive information about people's lives, that female engineer will say, well, should, for example, gender be a data point that is collected by that service. And I know that that is the kind of conversation that occurs because I've been in it where it is takes someone for whom that data has a real impact on their life to make it a conversation point within that team. Because mm. otherwise you are quite often designing products for audiences and that affect people that really usually are beneficial for you individually. So you can't kind of conceive of the problems these might cause for others. So in that sense, I think it is really important and we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that more diverse teams can help to identify errors and potential problems. And, and to Tao's point, I would say that the real challenge for those diverse teams is that they are actually in workplaces where that diversity is supported and not, you know, to Tao's language, a corporate asset for that female engineer to say, why is it that we are including gender as a data point in this product? She needs to be able to say that in an environment where she will be listened to and a discussion will be had and potentially changes could be made. And that's quite often where the real challenge is, is are people supported to articulate and have that difference acted upon? So it's not just about who's in the room. It's also got to be about, I guess, a set of guiding principles as to how people within that room operate. Where do you stand on all this, Jathan? On one hand, if you have a more diverse group of engineers building a technology, but ultimately the priorities are the same or the imperatives are the same and the economic and financial imperatives, right? We need uh, a company wants to create a technology that makes a profit. Venture capitalists want to invest in a technology that has a high return on that investment. And that necessarily influences what that AI looks like and the pressures put on the engineers actually building the technology to build it in one way and not another way. And so it really gets at this larger question of not just the ethics here, right? Do we have a set of guiding principles, you know, Google's do no harm, which they abandoned, but, but more so a question of politics, right? A question of whose values and priorities and goals are really represented here, who has power in setting those priorities, what are the conflicts at place and who wins out in those conflicts of values and interest? Those are much larger questions which, you know, can quite fundamentally challenge the the priorities or the structure of big companies that are often, you know, the forerunners of investing in and creating these technologies and also challenge the kind of partnerships they have, right? I mean, we see this with the the big 
walkout a, a handful of years ago at Google over the Project Maven initiative. And that was a, a partnership that Google had a contract with the US military to build image recognition AI systems that were going to be used in drone warfare. And the walkout there was really, you know, employees at Google led by some organizers like Meredith Whitaker saying, hey, that's not what we signed up for. And that's not what the kind of technologies we want to build. And there was a lot of controversy and there was a lot of attention around that. And that's when Google stepped back and said, okay, we need a set of AI ethics principles that will guide our decisions. But then fast forward a few years later, and we see that these same companies, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and a whole ecosystem of smaller companies and startups continue to have very large contracts with the fossil fuel industry, with the military, to build these same kinds of technology. So it really opens up that question of, has there been a, a, a sea change in not just the espoused ethics that these companies uh, want to follow or claim to follow, but the fundamental politics at play of who is setting priorities, what imperatives are really driving the creation of these technologies? Ellen, what would be an underlying philosophy for AI development that you would be comfortable with, that you think we should be looking at? So I think it is impossible today to separate philosophies for AI from the philosophies and priorities shaping our attitude to the future more generally. And specifically, I'm talking about climate change and sustainability and addressing rising inequality. Sustainability and inequality continue to come up in a number of conversations across society and are associated with our design of technologies. The last 75 years in computing have really been characterised by an extractive, short-term approach to computing. We're all about scale, getting products out to as many people as possible in as many contexts as possible, and flatness, kind of presuming everything is the same and that each context can be readily duplicated and we're about waste. We roll out new products all of the time, we change our iPhones all the time, we cease maintaining different software all of the time. So we've had this kind of attitude for the last 75 years that is extractive and short term and about scale as fast as possible. And now I think we really need to start talking about more sustainable approaches to AI. What does it mean to build a system, for example, an AI system, a digital assistant that is as enduring and relational as, I don't know, this is an unsexy example, but the water boiler in my house that's lasted for 75 years and still works in a way that works with me in my household 75 years later. So what would it mean to build technologies that change and adapt with us into the future whilst also reducing their imprint on the environment? Can I just ask a question about that? Mm. Voice Assistant can be consistently updated with sort of firmware upgrades and therefore is a thing that grows and changes over time. So does it not already kind of follow that underlying principle? But how old are our current? So we've had many generations of voice assistants. So, for example, it's true that right now our current crop of popular voice assistants, so Alexa and Siri, are updated over time. But that's because we're using them on our phones. 
if we think about the fact that not many of the technologies in our life have lasted more than kind of 25 to 30 years, it's not there's not really a lot of evidence to suggest will you still be using Alexa in its current <laughs> form 20, 30 years into the future. There's not really many software products that I can think of that have stayed with me my life online. You know, I'm an older millennial and I really can't think of many products except for Microsoft. Microsoft would be <laughs> the mainstay. You're not still messaging people with ICQ, is that what you're saying? Definitely. <laughs> I haven't used ICQ in <laughs> Yes, they're maintained now, but history is littered with a bunch of software products that cease being maintained as soon as they cease being popular. Okay, so issues around waste uh, are, are really crucial. When it comes to like charting out an underlying philosophy for how we should and perhaps shouldn't be developing AI, Tao, what are the sorts of principles that you think are non-negotiable? Yeah, I'd actually have to really strongly agree with Ellen on that. The sustainability issue is a really big one. I mean, all the planned obsolescence that we have with our devices is just absurd. I mean, I don't know anyone who has a phone that they've used for longer than 10 years, you know, to sort of constantly have to upgrade is an incredible demand on the planet and on people and on resources. And even as you say, you know, use an example like a voice assistant technology that is sort of constantly upgraded, but, you know, training AI also takes up an intense amount of energy. You know, I think there are comparisons that say to train an individual sort of convolutional neural network, for example, is the same as like the carbon footprint of 10 cars. So the idea that um, smart cities, for example, or making things smarter will make things greener is really not true. It doesn't hold because of the infrastructure it takes for, for example, uh, large data centers need to be cooled down and that takes a lot of of air conditioning um, and it takes a lot of energy to power that. Things like data labelling, you know, that needs to be done by people and there's always new things to label in the world. These things take up a lot of energy. So what's the alternative then? Are there ways of rebuilding this stuff from the ground up where they don't consume that much time and energy? I think there's ways of rebuilding these technologies from the ground up that don't use so much time and energy. There are techniques and tools being explored to reduce the energy footprint of our technologies. But I also think there's kind of a fundamental uh, reframing that needs to take place about what it is that we think we can use technology for. I feel like at the moment and particularly kind of over the last 25 years with the rise of terms like big data and the resurgence of AI, we've moved into this space where it's like anything can be done with a computer. Regardless of how effective it actually is, we can detect COVID from a cough. We can predict someone's lifetime life insurance requirements. We can do anything with enough data in computers. And I just don't think that's the case. And I think what we will see going forward is a narrowing, or I hope I hope what we'll see going forward is a narrowing of the context and situations in which we think an automated solution is the solution here. Because there's a lot of magic spells and snake oil that gets sold alongside really useful technologies. So hopefully we'll also stop um, proposing technology-driven solutions for problems that are human in origin and will probably take humans to solve. Okay, so that, that, that's a really interesting point. I guess one of the things I'm fascinated by is often when we have these discussions, 
where a lot of people end up is the it, it's it's about the how. It's about how we design those systems and and those choices. What I'm hearing from you in particular, Ellen, is actually it's not so much how. It's like there are some things we just shouldn't do. <laughs> Tell me if I'm misinterpreting that though. There are some things that we shouldn't do, but there's also some things that, like, frankly, we could not do, and yet we say we can do them. So in artificial intelligence, for example, it is not uncommon to hear people say they can do things with technology like predict who is going to be the best candidate for a job or predict who is most likely to have criminal behaviours or predict who is most likely to recommit an offence. We say that we can do things with technology that just genuinely hand on heart, we do not have the data or the computers or even the ability to kind of hold the world in one place and make predictions about a very uncertain future. So I think there's things we shouldn't do and all of those things are things that we shouldn't do, but they're not shouldn't do because they're unethical or they pose moral questions. It's also that they are technically impossible. And anyone who tells you that they're possible (laughs) has not properly considered the problem. Or is trying to make money of it or is trying, you know, or has a stake in that proposition. Jathan, when it comes to building a, a better philosophy for, for building AI, you know, obviously we've talked a little bit about who's in the room and what structures and guiding principles around those people in the room. Talked a little bit about some things that maybe we just shouldn't do. For you, what are the non-negotiables? If, if, we, were, if we were building a, a new set of ethical guidelines for how to develop AI in the future, where would you be starting, Jathan? Ellen has also really hit on something as well that's a, a real hobby horse of mine here, which is, you know, what I think of as a kind of politics of refusal. When do we have an opportunity to actually say no to a technology rather than a, a yes and yes, that's a great technology and here's how we can do it differently. It's not very common at all that we have an opportunity either individually or collectively as a society to say actually that thing should not exist or this thing that already does exist should be decommissioned. It should be thrown away. I tend to think of this as a, as a form of Marie Kondo, but for technology, right? We should really systematically think about going through all of the stuff that already exists, all of the things that are already being built and being used and hold them up and say, you know, not does this thing spark joy, um, <laughs> but does this thing actually contribute to social well-being, to social welfare? Does it contribute to creating the kind of society that we actually want to live in? Or does it contribute to creating a society that is somebody else's vision of how we ought to be living, perhaps a vision that benefits them over everybody else? And for me, you know, in thinking about what are the guiding principles that should really direct how we think about a, you know, not only just AI, but all technology, it really does come down to that, can I say no to this? Can we say no to this? And if the answer to that is no, you can't, you have to accept it and, you know, perhaps tweak around the edges, try to make it better, try to fit it into your life. Well, I think that's evidence of a technology that perhaps doesn't deserve to exist. It really comes down to how these institutions will use these technologies, whether they're accurate or inaccurate, to then make decisions that ultimately affect us in very profound ways. Technology becomes a thing that happens to us, not with us or by us, but something that happens to us. It's decisions made about our lives that then affect 
our access to services, our opportunities for advancement, and every other uh, really important part of our life. And, and that, to me, is really the question here. How is artificial intelligence being used as a conduit for the power of others to affect our lives? How is it being used as an alibi or a justification for those decisions about our lives? That is what needs to be opened up to a broader, more critical debate. It's not just about making that more transparent or making that more accountable, but really getting at so many of the things that we've talked about in this discussion about even being able to raise the question, should this even exist? And if so, why does it exist? Why is it being used on me? I think these are really critical questions that up till now, we really haven't been given the opportunity to even ask. Well, let's do this again sometime because it feels like there's lots more in this. A big thank you to our guests this week, Dr. Jathan Sadowski from Monash University. Thank you so much for joining us on Download the Show. Thank you so much. Ellen Broad from ANU. Thank you so much, Ellen. It was my pleasure. And Dr. Taufan, thank you so much for joining us from Monash University. Cheers. And with that, I shall leave you. Lots more in this discussion. No doubt we'll have to revisit it sometime in the future. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. 